Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 75. In today's show, we'll be talking to John Warlow, founder of the Value Builder System and author of The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. John's going to share how you can create a recurring revenue stream for your business, regardless of your industry. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Shai. Craig, you know, one of my favorite parts of doing this show is we get to hear from so many business owners and we learn all about the issues and challenges they're facing. And that's really what drives a lot of the content. And to me, that's what makes this a really interesting episode. What would you say is the biggest challenge for business owners that are trying to create more freedom, more freedom to do what they want with their life? Well, it's a continuum of trying to build more revenue and more revenue sources to grow the business, but still be able to extract themselves from the day-to-day operations. And it really shows up when they're involved in the direct delivery of the product and services. They can't scale themselves, and they're finding that they're in a trap. And so they're looking at, okay, how do I create more revenue sources, but without me necessarily tightly coupled into that? So it's a continual challenge in figuring out, how do I get out of that direct delivery mode? Yeah, my take on this is that you might think you're the CEO, but in most cases, you're really the CDO. You're the chief (laughs) delivery officer. (laughs) And as long as you're wearing that hat, there's no way out. You have to fire yourself from that position. And what that means is you have to create products and services that can be sold without your delivery. And that's exactly why we are so excited to have John Werlow with us today. John is the founder of the Value Builder System, a company that helps business owners improve the value of their company, much like this podcast. John is so passionate about helping small business owners. It's really become his life's work. He's the author of two best-selling books, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, which was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. Magazine as one of the best business books of 2011. It's been translated into four languages. And today we're going to be discussing subjects from John's book, The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. Prior to starting the Value Builder System, John started and exited four companies, including a quantitative market research business that was acquired by the Corporate Executive Board in 2008. John has been recognized by B2B Marketing as one of the top 10 business-to-business marketers in the United States. John was born in England and grew up in Canada, where he now lives with his family in Toronto and where I get to occasionally visit and tease him relentlessly about his accent. Good morning, John. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Hey, good morning, Shai. Good morning, Craig. Hey, we're really excited to have you here to talk about your book, The Automatic Customer. And I can tell you, I just love this book. And in the very beginning... You talk about your experience with your first iteration of your company, Wearlow & Co., and just how stressful running that business was. And I'm curious, do you recall the day when you knew that you had to change your business model? 
Well, I was responding to a request for proposal from a company called Bell Mobility, which is a, a mobile phone company, and they wanted six focus groups. And I can remember pricing it out because, as you know, in a, in a custom proposal, you've got an RFP situation, so you've got to have the cheapest price, most likely. So, you know, I was pricing it all out. So, in a focus group, you've got to hire the facility, you got to hire a moderator, you got to pay people uh, to come, an incentive, you got to, you know, have some ham and cheese sandwiches in the back of the room for the clients. So, I was pricing all this stuff out. And I was getting to a price that was around four grand per focus group in terms of hard costs. And so we put together a bid that was around 36 grand, as I recall. So very little margin in it for us. Maybe, you know, like maybe 10 grand for the entire project that would have lasted you know, a month or two. So very, mm-hmm. very skinny margins. And I can remember finding out that we lost the RFP to another firm. And I asked and I found out how much they had bidded. And it turned out they had bidded less than four grand a focus group, which was what I was calculating to be our hard costs on doing it. And I kind of threw my hands up in the air and said, this is ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. (laughs) How many hours just building the RFP? Yeah, exactly. And I thought, this is just crazy. You know, all this time, you know, groveling for work, some sort of beauty contest where in our estimation, the vendor had been selected as being one of the favorites. And we were just a pawn in their little game to be able to tell their bosses that they'd gotten three quotes. It was just BS. And I can remember thinking, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to play this game anymore. Yeah, it's just like when you find yourself in that race to the bottom and you're putting in all that time up front, it just adds insult to injury. For sure. So how did you come to this idea that you really had to shift the model and and what did you actually do? What we had to do is stop commoditizing ourselves. And the first thing that we knew we had to do was stop even naming what we did as something they can compare apples to apples against. So as soon as we said we offer focus groups, well, there's 50 other firms that offer focus groups in Toronto. So by definition, you know, because it's a qualitative, subjective science, there's no way to differentiate yourself. So the lowest price wins. And so we had to name what we did as something different. And beyond that, we had to do something different. Because again, what we needed to do in our case was to get beyond the research buyers, which were the professional buyers of what we sold, of focus groups, and go to the actual other division within the companies, the actual marketers. So not the buyers of the product, the professional sort of buyers, but the actual users of the product. And we started to interview them, and we learned that they would value research about the industry. They would value events that they could you know, connect together with other people with the same role as them. And those were the raw materials and the early sort of ingredients into what we did, which was to change our business model into a subscription offering, which was called Warlow Subscriber Network, which enabled big companies to get access to a pool of syndicated market research, a little bit like a Wall Street trader uses a Bloomberg terminal. They all share the same information or Gartner offers syndicated market research for all kinds of CTOs, chief technology officers. We did something similar for marketers. And so that was the evolution. And how was the buy-in internally to this shift? Did you have any resistance? 
Yeah, it was terrible, you know, because <laughs> our company was made up of two types of people. There were sort of entrepreneurial people who bought into what we were doing and weren't really sort of obsessed about how we did it. And then there was another cadre of very steeped, passionate market researchers, like people with lots of you know letters after their name, like doctors and masters in terms of their professional qualifications. And they viewed themselves first and foremost as market researchers. And so as a result, when we said, hey, we're going to change our business model, we're going to get out of the market research business, and we're going to do this thing called the Warless Subscriber Network, which is totally different, totally not you know, the way research companies run, big red, red flags were going up in their minds saying, well, but wait a minute, I'm a market researcher, and my market rate or my value in the marketplace is predicated on me working for a market research company and me being able to say, yes, I've done 56,000 focus groups or whatever. And we were like, no, no, we're getting out of that business. And so we lost pretty much half of our staff because they, quote unquote, didn't want to work for the McDonald's of market research. We weren't trying to become the McDonald's of market research, but that's how they viewed it. And I, you know, any Anyone who's going to go from a, a custom consulting, custom design, advertising, marketing, architecture, anything with any modicum of creativity, they're going to run into this where people who work for them think of themselves as first and foremost, a designer, a creative, a writer, a photographer, and second, an employee of your company. And I mean, it's strong cheese. You've got to figure out a way decide whether you're passionate about enough to move to that model to basically say goodbye to those employees. <laughs> Strong cheese indeed, I guess. You know, it's interesting because in a way what you did was you de-risked not just in terms of your revenue model, but in a way in terms of your employee model too. I love the fact you brought that up, Shai, because you're absolutely right. Once you've got a subscription company and people are buying into the subscription company, they're no longer buying your employees. They're buying the thing that you're offering, the subscription company. And your employees are a way that they deliver that. But in the research business, they were buying the CVs and the bios and the, the profiles, the resumes of our researchers. And they held us ransom, right? So they could say, well, you know, Mr. Client wants me to moderate the focus groups. Therefore, I should get a raise because I'm always being requested to do this. Because in the absence of any product to sell, if you just offer a service, well, services are squishy and they're subjective. So in order to buy a service or evaluate you know, the efficacy of the service, you've got to evaluate the person offering the service. And so all of a sudden that person's CV and the person's experience becomes more important than the product you're buying. So I'm a big proponent of productizing whatever service you offer. So it sounds like a thing. So people say, yeah, I'm buying the Warlow subscriber network. I'm not hiring Judy Smith to do my focus groups, who happens to be an employee of Warlow. Do you see the distinction? Absolutely. And it keeps you from what once was a business where you had two kinds of chases where you were delevered, where you're chasing customers all the time that are competing on price because you weren't clearly differentiated and it depended on your knowledge workers. So you eliminated that piece of it. And then, of course, on the other side, instead of being held hostage by high talent, very expensive employees that, oh, by the way, are just going to jump to the next company that do what you do as soon as that offer comes along, where you're constantly also having to chase new talent yeah, because, you, because you're losing talent. And as you grow talent, they become too expensive or they move on. 
But yeah, they also move on to be freelancers, right? So yeah, some of them move to another company when you can't afford to do their next raise or whatever, but others will just go freelance, right? So if you're a great copywriter, you're a great photographer, you're a great market researcher, you can just set yourself up as a freelance and in many cases, take the customers of the company you used to work for. So again, it's great for freelancers, terrible for people who want to build a business. John, in your book, you list nine types of subscription models. Is there sort of a hierarchy to these? Yes. I should sort of segue the idea behind Orlo Subscriber Network was to create a subscription model where these former clients of ours who were buying you know, focus groups and quantitative studies would buy this subscription. In our case, one of the nine models that we chose was one where we were selling information. We were basically doing the same market research, but we were selling it back without customizing it for each client. In other words, it's called syndicated market research. So we would do a piece of research and share it with all of our subscribers. And that's a information-based subscription model and one that can work quite well. You know, there's some good leverage there, obviously. You know, software as a subscription is something we're all very familiar with now. If you subscribe to Microsoft 365, you're subscribing to software. Sometimes people get a little bit hung up on when they've got a hard good to offer. So something physical to send. Dollar Shave Club would be an example where they're actually sending you something in the mail. In their case, razor blades. So... I don't know that there's necessarily a hierarchy, Craig. I think whenever you've got a physical product to send, you've got the added layer of logistics, which you know is significant. Obviously, you've got to ship product. You've got to deal with fulfillment. You've got to worry about whether you've got enough of the widgets that you want to sell. So I think proceed with caution when you've got a hard good, I think, is the answer. But that's the way I would sort of think about some of the hierarchy. Yeah, and of the models that you have, which one do you personally favor and, and why? Well, I don't know that I favor anyone. It's a little bit more situational, meaning, you know, depending on the situation of the business, I might recommend one over the other. You know, a lot of people talk about, for example, the membership model where you're providing access to some information behind a paywall. What we found in doing the research was that those tend to be much more successful when it's a business to business site. So when you're providing information business owners need and use to make money, their customers tend to be stickier than if you have a business to consumer model. So for example, I'm aware of a membership website called Dream of Italy, where people who want to travel to Italy, who want information about you know, special things to do in Italy and how you know, prices are changing and hotels are becoming available and so forth. Well, that's going to be a lot easier membership website to quit when times are tough than say contractorselling.com, which is a website for contractors. And as the name implies, teaching them how to do sales and marketing. So whether you're an electrician, a plumber, a heating HVAC guy, you can subscribe to contractor selling or restaurantowner.com. Those are websites that are going to have stickier customers. So I think Craig, I wouldn't say, you know, one over the other rate would be my preference. It would just be a little bit more situational. Like what's the situation of the company? And and then I'd probably back into a recommendation once I understood that. And John, in your experience, what types of businesses struggle the most if they're trying to transition at least part of their revenue to a subscription model? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an owner's mentality. A lot of owners, in particular owners, have been doing the same company for many years. So if you've had a company for decades, it becomes very difficult to imagine your industry 
working in a different way. You know, what I hear most resistance to when I speak to audiences about this topic is, well, that's not the way it works in our industry. Well, that's nice, John. It's interesting that that works in the software space or that works in information publishing, but it would never work in fill in the blank industry. And I think that's a bit of a mindset shift. And again, happens, I think, a lot to people who have been in the industry for a long time. I'll give you a real life example. So the flower industry, the flower store industry. So you know that how you buy flowers mostly in most cases. I mean, you've got 100 flowers is one kind of model, but for the most part, most people buy flowers in a flower store, oftentimes at the concourse level of a bank tower. You forgot your wife's wedding anniversary and you you quickly buy them and you see the retail store and, and that inspires you to buy flowers terrible business model, right? Because the flowers rot in the fridge because you don't know how many customers are going to come walking in. Typical flower store will throw out half of its flowers every month because they just buy the wrong amount. You've got to buy very expensive space. So you're renting $100, $200 a square foot in a big city. So just a crappy business model. Two guys came along and said, okay, we're going to sell flowers, but we're going to do it in a different way. We're going to sell them on subscription. So the segment of the market that buys flowers regularly are hotels, restaurants, spas who want the flowers on their reception table, right? To give sort of a boutique image. And so they approached uh, these guys, Sanyu Panda and Brian Burkhart, the, the founders of this company, approached these restaurants and spas and said, we'll bring you flowers, but we'll do it on subscription. So you sign up for a subscription and we'll just bring them to you every month. Well, they started this company called H. Bloom. Now, the average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber, so the amount of money they get from one of these restaurants or spas over the life of their subscription is $4,500, meaning they stay for many, many months as subscribers. Well, you can imagine that changes all the economics of selling flowers. All of a sudden, H. Bloom can actually hire salespeople, you know, face-to-face salespeople to go and call on a spa and actually walk into the door and say, hey, how would you like for us to send you fresh cut flowers every month? Changes the business model completely. They don't have to rent very expensive space. I think last time I talked to Panda, he was spending $30 a square foot for basically factory space in a very rundown part of town because he doesn't have to have $200 a square foot space to sell flowers because he doesn't sell them to consumers. He sells them to businesses. So it's another example, I think, of really rethinking an industry. But if you talk to a flower store owner who'd been doing the same thing for 25 years and you said, you know, how about you sell flowers on subscription? You know, they would have looked at you funny, but it took Panda and Burkhart, guys that were outside of the flower business to sort of rethink the industry. So hard to do that, you know, when you're vested in a model and it's almost like the longer you've been doing it, the harder it is. And it reminds me of one of the stories from the book where you talked about a woman that had developed a dance studio Mm, yeah, and had been doing it for 40 years before she changed the model. Is that true? Yeah, 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 for sure. Now, uh, Kathy Blakely. Oh, I can't remember her daughter's name. Doesn't matter. She had this little dance studio in the middle of nowhere, New Hampshire. She'd be doing it for 40 years. She was kind of an industry guru. Again, you would be after 40 years. She gets a call from Celebrity Cruise Lines and they say, we'd like you to come teach like ballroom dancing on one of our ships that's touring around the Mediterranean, right? So she says, absolutely. Where do I sign? The problem is, what do I do with my studio? She's been doing this for 40 years. She turns to her daughter, right? And says, will you, I think her daughter's name is Suzanne. Suzanne, will you run the studio? And Suzanne says, sure, mom, on one condition. What's that? Will you write down 
all of your templates and format and give me the checklist so that I can run it just the way you would, mom. And so mom writes down all the checklists. Well, the daughter looks at these checklists. It's literally like a just add water recipe for running this little dance studio. And she says, what would a new dance studio owner do to get their hands on 40 years of my mom's little secrets and tips and tricks for running a dance studio? So she's kind of a light bulb moment. So Suzanne sets up, with her mom's permission, dancestudioowner.com, a website for, as you might have guessed, dance studio owners, particularly new and young ones who want to learn, becomes a huge success, thousands of members, and it gets acquired by one of the fastest growing, most successful dance apparel owners in the United States. Kathy had been running her dance studio for 40 years, not a single offer, not even a sniff from an acquirer who wanted to buy her little dance studio. <laughs> right. But she sets up a subscription model and within two years has an offer from one of the fastest growing companies in the industry. Just the, the power of the subscription business model. And, you know, you think of why that became so valuable. And the missing piece here is the data. Mm, yeah, the data and the relationships, right? I mean, the, the company actually escapes me right now. I can't remember it, but it was an apparel maker. And their distribution model is these sort of small independent dance studios. So for them, they looked at this subscription model as a beautiful channel to both get market research for dance studios about what they wanted and the apparel that they wanted to sell and merchandise, as well as obviously sell their dance studio apparel through this channel. So yeah, data is in that case, the missing ingredient. And it's also interesting to me because it really changes what an acquirer might pay significantly. And it's not just because the revenue is recurring. So in the model that you're talking about, and this might be an interesting segue to talk just a little bit about the measurement, about the new math around subscription sales. But in that scenario, you have an acquirer that is trying to sell apparel, so they have a product business, and they have a cost to acquire new customers. And now all of a sudden they have this subscription channel of all of this customer data of people that already want to buy dance advice, dance instruction. And so clearly they're pretty far down their funnel already in terms of potential buyers of their other products. So when they're trying to figure out what they would pay, they just look at those number of subscribers and they can quickly do some math and say, okay, how much would it cost us to acquire these customers otherwise? They're going to pay a lot more for that business. Absolutely. I mean, data is this kind of dirty little secret of the subscription business. It is the killer app. I mean, let's say you're in the business of selling razor blades. Let's say you're Gillette or you know any of the other big kind of razor blade companies, consumer packaged goods companies. And how do you sell razor blades? Well, today, for the most part, you sell them through this sort of very dense labyrinth of distribution channels, right? So you sell them to a distributor who then calls on Walgreens and Walgreens will buy the razor blades. Well, if you're Gillette, you have no idea who your customers are. You have no clue. You certainly can't communicate directly with them because you're like two, three layers away from your customers. So if you want to understand what your customers want, whether they want seven blades or a rotating head or you know, whatever, you have no idea how to do that. So you've got to buy tons of market research and you've got to kind of launch products. Whereas Dollar Shave Club, by contrast, has a direct relationship with its subscribers, right? So they're talking to their subscribers all the time. They're having ongoing communication. So it's very easy to say, 
okay, you know, we're considering launching a new product. In their case, it was shave butter, as an example. They'll know based on the tenure of their subscribers, the satisfaction levels of the subscribers, which ones are most likely to then go buy the second product. And once they have two products installed, they know very likely that when they launch One Wipe Charlie's, which was their third product, who are most likely to buy those as well because they've got the data. If you're Gillette, I mean, you're lost. You are literally flying blind, which, by the way, is why Dollar Shave Club got acquired recently for a billion dollars. They got acquired for five times top line revenue. They were doing $200 million of revenue. They got acquired for five times that. After only about five years, right? But if you're the buyer, you're thinking, my gosh, again, what is our normal cost of acquiring customers? Yeah, it could be that for sure. As well, Unilever is probably saying we have 6,486,000 6, other products. If we could do the same thing for diapers and tampons and hand soap and dishwasher detergent, you could see how they would think, hmm, this is an interesting business model. I mean, anything that runs out, anything that we consume on a regular cadence is ripe for a subscription business model. Yeah, it's brilliant. And, you know, I'm thinking about how Amazon now has us. You know, a button popped up on my phone the other day where I could just reorder some deodorant. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's scary where they're taking us. You know, you look at Prime and you say, why on earth would they launch Prime? It's got to be a lost leader for them. At whatever it is, I think it's nine ninety nine now a month. Is it is it around a hundred bucks? I can't remember. But it's it's a very low cost if you think about all the value, all the streaming content, and the free shipping and so forth. But what Prime does to us as subscribers is it makes us buy more. What Amazon found, and I'm sure we know in consumer behavior, is that people were buying just one or two products from Amazon. You know, they started with books. You know, maybe they go to you know, children's toys at, at the holidays. But limited SKUs, like not very broad in terms of their buying. What Amazon wants you to do is buy your dog food, buy everything, right? Your deodorant, everything. And so what they found with Amazon Prime is once you subscribe, you know, pay your money, it makes you more likely to buy wider, buy more things. And that's one of the sort of benefits. I think the last time I looked, the average Amazon Prime subscriber was spending about $1,500 a year with Amazon compared to the average Amazon customer, non-Prime subscriber, was it about $600? So the prime subscriber was paying kind of three times more on average because they're just buying deeper, wider. And that's what Amazon's trying to do. Yeah. In your minds, you're like, oh, well, I'm amortizing this shipping cost that I paid for up front, right? In order to get my free shipping. So the more I buy, the more I win. Yeah. And you see that the, the best example of this, I think, is one that I wrote about a little bit in the book. It's called Amazon Fresh. You may not have heard of it. It's grocery delivery, right? So the next gen kind of Peabody or web van, if you remember the dot com guys. So grocery delivery sat in beta in Seattle at Amazon and they couldn't make it work. They offered grocery delivery, but what they found was people would say, oh my gosh, I'm running out of milk. I'll go buy milk from Amazon. And they'd have a truck roll. They'd literally send a truck to go to your house and drive. <laughs> With a half a gallon. <laughs> right. Just nothing made sense about that model. And they experimented with like minimum price orders and shipping orders and, and values. And literally it sat in beta for five years. They then made a decision. They're going to launch in a second market, Los Angeles, but they're going to do one thing differently. They're going to first make people to subscribe to Amazon Fresh. 
the psychology was this. Once they subscribe, they spend their $300 to subscribe to Amazon Fresh. That's going to make them much more likely and inclined to, quote unquote, get their money's worth. Now, when people make an order from Amazon Fresh, they're like, yeah, I got milk. But you know what? I paid for this subscription. I want to actually get my money's worth. So maybe they've got dog food. Oh, look at this. They've got laundry detergent. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know they had broccoli. I can get them to ship my broccoli. You know, And now you're buying $100, $200 from the grocery store from Amazon. You're grocery order from Amazon, suddenly it makes sense to roll a truck to go deliver this and the rest is history. The product that the service offering has been launched in many cities now across the United States using the subscription model as its sort of killer app. So again, just the two starkly different models, one failed, the other succeeded, I think in large measure because they use the subscription model. John, that brings up when I'm looking at my list of subscriptions that I have and this item of subscription fatigue, how does a seller overcome that challenge when marketing their services? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great question, Craig. I mean, you've got subscription fatigue setting in now because when we look down our credit card bill, I mean, most of us, I don't know about you, but most of us are now into two pages, three pages, four pages of, of these little charges, right? Like you've got, you know, $9.99 for Dropbox and $49 for Salesforce.com and 10 bucks a month for Netflix and Dollar Shave. I mean, we have all of these subscriptions now. None of them, in and of themselves, are all that consequential on this credit card statement. But then you get to the bottom on page four and there's a huge number you've got to pay every month because we're getting so much now on subscription. And so what I think is happening among consumers is we're just becoming a lot more discerning about the things we subscribe to. And so what that's doing is for the company offering the subscription is forcing them to just be way better, uh, sharper and clearer about the value proposition. In fact, it's sharpening people to actually force up the value proposition. So, you know, I talk about 10x versus 10%, meaning nobody is going to subscribe to your service to save 10%. Given the choice, consumers are going to want to have choice, right? They're going to not want to be locked into a subscription in most cases. And so if they're only going to save 5 or 10% or get some dorky gift with purchase if they subscribe, they're just not going to do it. What I found is that if you can aspire, and it doesn't always work, but if you can sort of aspire to a 10x value proposition. Like it's 10 times better to subscribe than it is to buy on a transactional basis. That's when I think you get traction. So let's take a look at Apple Music as an example. At 10 bucks a month, I think they're, they're charging. Or Spotify. I mean, you're getting a library of literally millions of songs that you can basically have access to for 10 bucks a month. That's a 10x value proposition. At Netflix, you know, it costs you four or five bucks to download a movie on iTunes or you can have access to literally millions of titles or certainly hundreds of thousands of titles, all this new content for the price of streaming or, or downloading two movies. Suddenly, the 10x value proposition, if you watch like most Americans do something like 10 or 15 hours of television a week, it starts to really add up and make sense to subscribe. So it doesn't always work, but I would love your kind of northern star, your, your shining light, your aspiration to be, okay, how do we make this 10 times more attractive to subscribe to than to buy on a one-off basis. That's great. And you've really made a case for the value of reoccurring revenue. And where the business owner is looking at how they can evaluate what would be the best thing for them from a recurring value stream, any suggestions to follow up on that? 
Well, if you're thinking about the value of your company and the overall sort of impact it could have, having a recurring revenue model could have on the value of your company, I think that's wise. I think if you look at the eight key drivers of company value that we measure, recurring revenue is one of the most important and often the one business owners actually score the lowest on when we evaluate them. So I think if your goal is to, over time, drive up the value of your company, not just the size of your company, but the value of your company to a third-party acquirer, for example, I think recurring revenue is going to be very, very key. And the kind of one metric that probably will determine more than anything else, the value of your subscription model in the eyes of an acquirer is going to be your churn rate, meaning your cancellation rate, the rate at which customers stop subscribing. That's going to be the key number that you're going to want to watch like a hawk, because of course, acquirers are going to want to know how is this business going to continue when you leave, when you ride off into the sunset as the owner. And of course, subscription models in general, recurring revenue overall is going to give them more comfort that your business is going to continue, provided your churn rate is a reasonable low number. John, we really appreciate you joining us today. The tremendous value and insight. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, I mean, we talk about the value of your company. And if you are keen to find out what the value of your company is, what's driving the value of your company, I really highly recommend you go to valuebuilder.com. There's a questionnaire there where you can take about 15 minutes. It takes you through some of the factors that acquirers are going to look at. Whether you want to sell your business now or in 20 years doesn't really matter. You're going to be able to see your business through the lens of how an acquirer would look at it. Some of the benefits, some of the, the assets that you've got, along with some of the things that may be pulling back the value of your company. So you've got time to work on it. So go to valuebuilder.com and you'll get to the end of that questionnaire and it'll say, how did you hear about this? Uh, just enter Shy's name, S-H-Y-E, and that way we'll get you a copy or Shy can get you a copy of your results. And I think, Shy, you were going to sort of layer in a bit of an offer here as well. Yeah, for all our listeners, for the first five people that go and get their value builder score, I will do a personal consultation and schedule time with you to review it and find out how you can start incorporating some of this revenue model and some of the other principles we talked about today into your business. That's a really cool offer. You know, I think uh, across our network of certified value builders, a typical price point for that consultation is about $500. So the fact that you're willing to do that at no cost for the first five folks, that's an awesome offer. So thanks for doing that, Shai. Well, we're really excited to try that out. And John, I can't thank you enough for being here today. You've been a great guest and we absolutely love this book, The Automatic Customer. And that'll be available in our show notes and businessownersradio.com. Our guest today has been John Warrilow, author of The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. You can learn more about John and the Value Builder System, and you can take advantage of our offer to get your free Value Builder System score by going to our show notes at businessownersradio.com. When you get your score, be sure to reference Business Owners Radio. We will be offering a free consultation to the first five people who fill out and get their Value Builder score. You can also get links to John's books and learn more in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. 
Tell your fellow business owners about the show. And, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.